Welcome to the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Teaching Podcast. We are so glad that you've been able to join us. We are currently teaching through the book of Matthew in a series we are calling Something Greater because the message that Matthew proclaims over and over in his book is that something greater than anything else is here, and that something greater is Jesus. It's our prayer that as we study this book together, we will see a picture of Jesus that is more beautiful than anything this world can offer. If you're in the Nashville area, we'd love for you to join us in person. We worship together on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 at 3410 Granny White Pike, Nashville, Tennessee. Good morning, everybody. It is so great to see you guys. I have missed your faces, and it's great to be here this morning and get a chance to bring you the word. And so, excuse me, I'm a little out of practice. You know, I haven't preached since Advent, so if I stumble over some things, just give me some grace, all right? I move around a little bit more than Gary, so I may actually fall. (laughs) That'll add to it. It's going to be a fun morning because um, this morning, as I've been preparing for this, I was reminded of a book that someone gave me back in 2001. And when it first came out in 2001, it was the book that everybody was reading. And it's funny because the way they gave it to me was in CDs. So there was like 15 CDs in a case. Some of y'all don't remember these days. And we lived in Bellevue and I was commuting in as we were starting Midtown. So every day I was in my car for an hour. It's before podcasts, all that stuff. But I'd plop that CD in and just listen to this very interesting book. Maybe you've heard of it. It's a guy named Jim Collins and he wrote this book, Good to Great. And what he did was he decided he was going to do this research of not good companies, but great companies that have maintained their greatness over multiple generations. So that couldn't be attributed to just one season or one leader. And as he studies all these great companies, and he defines greatness in his book, he starts to find these things that are common among them. And the book is about these traits of greatness. But there's a quote at the beginning of this book that has stuck with me for years. And it's a great way to set up what we're going to talk about today. Good is the enemy of great. And that is one of the key reasons why we have so little that become great. We don't have great schools principally because we have good schools. We don't have great government basically because we have good government. Few people attain great lives in large part because it's just so easy to settle for a good life. And what we're about to dive into It's really going to challenge us because good is so good. And Jesus is going to challenge us. Are we going to settle for good? Are we ready for the journey of greatness? And it's really crazy because the passage that we're about to read is a Christmas passage. I just love that Gary takes off for the weekend and he leaves me the Christmas passage without leaving the Christmas tree up here or any of the decorations. But we're in Matthew chapter one. Lisa, you're going to come and read this for us. Thank you. Um, And we're going to be starting in verse 18, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Yes. Thanks, Molly. You were sitting way back there. I know. Did Warren get here late? Is that the problem? Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) I think my husband started talking. Um, Love you. Okay, we're reading Matthew today. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Here's the word of the Lord. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, 
But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name of Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave, and he gave him the name Jesus. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, this passage of scripture. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would breathe on these words, that they would come alive and like a fire, Father, they would set fire within our own soul. That, Lord, in this time, would you bring us revelation of yourself? Lord, bring revelation of us. And, Lord, bring revelation of this incredible life that you're calling us to. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this is a really familiar passage of Scripture. This is where we hear that Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, who we don't know a lot about, is going to take care of the situation and has a dream. But right here in verse 18, it says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. They were engaged. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Those 10 words in the book of Matthew is what we call the virgin birth. And the doctrine of the virgin birth, let's try to get our heads around it. Because most historians would tell you that there's evidence that Jesus actually lived and walked the earth. And I would say maybe all historians would say there's probably no more influential person in history than Jesus. Maybe past and even present. Most would even accept that Jesus was a prophet. Almost all would say that he was a teacher. Some would say he was a leader. Some would even go so far as to say he was a miracle worker or this charismatic leader or this orator. He was also a team builder. He was, some would say, a political revolutionary. He was a good man. He was moralistic. Some call him mystic. Some call him guru. Some call him self-help genius. Some call him a myth. And either others call him a legend. But right here at the very beginning of the book of Matthew, Matthew is saying something very different because he's saying none of those things. That Jesus isn't a prophet. He's not a teacher. He's not a leader. He's not a miracle worker. He's not this charismatic leader, team builder, political revolutionary, a good man, moralistic, mystic guru, self-help genius. He's done some of those things, but primarily that's not who he is. He is the Messiah. Now, what does this mean that he is the Messiah? That from the beginning of time, God promised that there's one coming that is going to rescue men from the curse of sin. 
that when Adam and Eve sinned through all of mankind under the curse of sin, we've all been born under the curse of that sin. And there's one that's going to come and it's going to lift that curse and actually set us free. That's the Messiah. And Jesus was born of the virgin, which means what? This is going to blow your mind if you've never heard it. That God is the perfect judge. He is the perfect holy judge. Scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It also says the wages of sin is death, meaning every sin that you have ever committed, that anybody has ever committed, and all the world and all of history will be held accountable. That the perfect judge in history will bring the perfect punishment to every sin that has ever been committed, and that perfect punishment is death. He is holy. He will not waver from his judgment at all. But here's the crazy thing. The one who is the perfect judge, the one who has declared the sentence as death, is the one who then became man and consumed the very punishment that was due us and was demanded by him. Scripture says that God is the just, but he's also the justifier. That the Messiah that we've been waiting for wasn't some great man. It was God himself. That Jesus was both God and man, and they collided in harmony, and he took on flesh so they go to the cross to take our sins upon him so that we could be set free. That's our Messiah. What kind of love is this that he would do such a thing? There is no other name but Jesus, the only one that's worthy of our worship. So last week, our neighbor called Renee and said, hey, <clears throat> I was walking down my driveway last night and actually a possum jumped out in front of me and started running down my driveway and I saw it run out of my driveway and we have this crawl space underneath our house with these vents that ventilate the crawl space, but one of the crawl space vents was knocked down and that possum ran across the yard and crawled up underneath my house. And she goes, you got a possum underneath your house. <laughs> so Renee called me and she goes, I knew it. I knew there was something underneath our house. It's not haunted. We've got a possum underneath there and you need to call somebody. And I'm like, okay, like, who do you call? Like, do, can I call any of you? Like, do y'all catch possums? So I said, okay. So I got my car and I went up to Hillsboro Hardware up here and I walked in and you know the guys behind the counter, they're just good old boys. And I said, hey guys, I got a possum problem. And they go, no, you don't. You got a possum solution. Come with us. I'm like, I like the way these guys think, you know? So they take me over to the part of the hardware store where there are these cages. They're called critter cages, all right? Or critter catches or whatever. And he said, yeah, you set it like this. You put some stuff in the back of the cage that they like to eat and you'll catch a possum. So I take it home and I got it on my counter and I'm, I open up the refrigerator. And I'm like, what would a possum want to eat? <laughs> you ever thought about that? I'm not trusting Google, Siri. I don't want to know. I want to figure it out. So I put like an apple back there, some cheese, a bit of salami, a small glass of wine. I'm thinking <laughs> you won't be able to resist it. Seriously, okay, and so I set it over by the vent that's still off because that possum's under my house, and I, gotta, I could hardly sleep that night because I'm thinking, I'm going to catch a possum, like, 
And first thing I do, I get up in the morning, I get dressed and run out there. And lo and behold, I caught a possum. Yes. And I'm kind of celebrating. I'm doing the, I caught a possum dance. You know that dance. And just celebrating. And then it hit me. What do I do with it? (laughs) Everything I said about Jesus, most of you have heard before. Most of you have heard that he was God and man, that he is a Messiah, that he came and died on the cross and then rose again to newness of life so that we too can have life. You've heard that. What do we do with that? Like today, what do we do with that? Well, this is going to mess with you. It's been messing with me all week, so I'm going to share the love that I think in this story about Joseph, there's kind of the template for how Jesus is going to deal with all of us and how he is dealing with us. So let's dive into the life of Joseph and see if we can't see some of the stuff that's going on here. Because I think God is calling us from good to great. Because, verse 19, Joseph, her husband, was a faithful man or faithful to the law. Your translation may say that he was a righteous man. You may have one translation that says he was a good man and yet didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. See, Joseph was a good guy. Even though we know that he was probably somewhere between the age of like 15, 18, maybe 19, he was a teenager And yet he was a good guy. He had every option at his disposal to drag her out into the street and shame her because he was engaged to her and she was pregnant, which means she cheated on him. She committed adultery and she was pregnant through that adultery. He could have dragged her out into the streets. He could have washed his name of all guilt and said, it's all her. And if they weren't over Roman rule at that time, people could have picked up stones and stoned her. This was a stonable offense in the Old Testament. But scripture says, he he said, I'm not going to do that. I'm I'm a good guy. In fact, when it says that he's going to divorce her quietly, it's going to cost him. Like he's giving up the bride price that he's already paid to Mary's family. He's also the expense of actually going through the process of a divorce. He was a good guy. She made the mistake. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to keep it quiet. And I'll financially, I'll fund it and just get on with my life. but God was having none of it. Good is good. But you know what? Good never embraces Jesus because good never needs faith. Actually, good is the watering down of Jesus. Good is saying, I want to know a lot about Jesus, but I'm not so sure I want to know him. I want to know a lot about how to have a good life, but I don't want to live by faith. And so I want to go to church. I mean, it's good that you're at church. It's good. And pray. That's good to pray. Come on. That's good to pray. And like some of you give to the church. That's good. You're generous. You give. Some of you even go to small group. That may not be so good. Or it may be good. I don't know. It may be great. But that may all be good. But nothing replaces the step of actually putting my faith and my trust in Jesus. And trusting where he's going. Because see, good always does what is reasonable. Good always does what is predictable. Good always does what has been done before. Good keeps the rules. Good knows that if you do right, it's going to be right. 
Good always plays it safe. Good is always looking for the comfort zone. Because we start to believe that the comfort zone, the safe places, the predictable, I've got it all under control, is the life we were made to live. And Jesus is coming in and going, nope. Let me give you an example. In Luke chapter 15, there's this story, maybe you've heard it before, of these two brothers. The younger brother is a bit wild, and he says to his dad, I want my inheritance now, takes it and goes, lives an outrageous life completely contrary to the family system, lives it, spends all the money, goes broke. It's just in horrible shape, comes crawling home with his tail between his legs. The big brother stays home. The big brother keeps his head about him. The big brother does the right thing. And listen to what his big brother says when dad starts throwing a party for the little brother who's home. He says, look, Dad, look, all these years, I have always done the right thing. Haven't all my years, I've always done what you asked me to do. All my years, I've been the good son. And you never gave me and my friends even a young goat that we could celebrate. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, You kill the fatty calf for him. This whole story is about the goodness of the older son. He's sitting out in the barn and he's kicking rocks. There's a party going on in the house and he's not going to that party because he knows I'm the good son. That party should be for me. And the father comes out and says, no, son, you don't understand. Something supernatural has taken place. Something that your goodness can't possibly imagine. He was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. What none of us could do that only God can do. He did it and that's what we're celebrating. It's supernatural. And only faith expects the supernatural. Goodness has no room for the supernatural. Goodness only has what is predictable. What's been done before. What happened? The older son never went into the celebration. Let me give you another example. Jesus was teaching and he was on the hillside. And as it often happened with Jesus, when he started teaching, crowds of people just started flooding in, like by the thousands. And so the disciples are over on the side taking notes. You know, that's a good one. That's great. Wow, that's really good. Like, where do you think he gets this stuff, you know? And they're scribbling this down and they look around and they huddle up with the disciples and they come up with the plan and just think about just the arrogance of it. They come to Jesus and they say, hey, yo, G, um, <clears throat> we've been talking. You need to send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countrysides so they can find food and a place to stay because it's late and we're out in the remote areas. We've got a plan. And Jesus, you need to listen to us because experience and our vast knowledge among us disciples, we know what's best in this situation because this is a good plan. Send them all home. And what does Jesus do? He looks at them and he just looks at them and goes, you give them something to eat. And what is he doing? Jesus is trying to invite the disciples from good to supernatural. 
He's trying to call them out of what they've always experienced, what's always predictable, what's always safe. Here's the plan. It's going to work, I promise, into the supernatural that can only be entered into by faith. And what do they immediately do? They reveal to Jesus, we're not ready to leave. Because he said, hey, we only have five loaves and bread and fishes. Unless we go and buy more food for this crowd, there's no way we can do it. In other words, Jesus, we're camping out so hard and good. There's no way we're going to go over there. And Jesus is saying, don't set your eyes on what is seen. Set your eyes on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Now, hang on, boys. I'm about to show you something. And he fed the 5,000. God is trying to move us from good to a life of faith. To a life that's great in his greatness. So, there are three ways that I think that uh, Joseph... Let me say one other thing about faith. I'm, this whole journey of faith, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, for, great, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. What's not your own doing? Faith. It actually, it says, it is a gift of God. The faith that we have is a gift from God, not a result of work so no one can boast. If you know Jesus, he has filled your pockets with faith. Like you don't have to leave here and go, where do I go find this faith? He has given you this faith and you have more than enough. In fact, the next line says, when we understand what we've been given in faith, then we begin to understand verse 10. We are his workmanship. Do you know what faith first does? It helps you realize that you are not the way you are by mistake that you are the way you are by design. And the next line says, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time that you can walk in them. Here's the crazy thing. Before time even began, God knew you and he designed you exactly the way you are. Can you play the guitar? God designed you exactly like that. Because you don't need to play the guitar for where he's calling you to go. Because he's already prepared works ahead of time just for you. Each one of us, when we grab a hold of the faith that's been given us, it awakens us to the reality that we have been uniquely made. And we've been uniquely made for a unique purpose. Not to live and camp out and safe and good. But to live by faith this exciting life that he's calling us into. Because when we start to grab a hold of faith, it's a dangerous thing because faith grows legs. And when it grows legs, it moves. And when it moves, it carries us with it. So let's just go back to Joseph because we're going to see the fruit of this walking away from good, walking into great in three ways with Joseph, with his family, with his community, and with himself. So go back to verse 20. Let's see what this has to say. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. What was he considering? Putting her away. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Let's just stop right there. I hate that. I hate that every time an angel shows up, one of the first things he says is don't be afraid. And why does he do say don't be afraid? Because there's so much to be afraid of. He's not saying, hey, it's, it's safe out those doors. He's not saying that at all. He's like, it's scary as hell out there. Uh, but hey, hang on, breathe deep, breathe deep. You can pull it. <sighs> Don't be afraid because where I'm taking you is scary. In fact, I want to, just a rabbit trail here, okay? If you follow Jesus, being scared is a normal part of your life. I'm, it's just normal. I'm, 
In fact, if you're saying I'm living by faith, but you're not scared of anything, I'm not sure you're living by faith. Because Jesus, when we follow him by faith, he gets us into stuff that's too big for us. I only have a few loaves and a few fishes. Yeah, we're feeding 5,000. Let's go. Well, that's scary. Yep, let's go. Don't be afraid. If Jesus is leading you in faith, he's going to get you so in over your head that you can't help but cry out to him and behold the wonder of his greatness. Okay, let's keep going. I could stay there forever, but... She will give birth to a son and you will uh, to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which is God is with us. When jo Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. He gave him the name Jesus. So... Joseph got up, he did what the angel asked him to do. And what did he actually do? Well, let me give you a little history of that time. Joseph didn't live in an apartment all by himself over on the West End of Nashville. Joseph, being a teenager, always lived with his parents. And in that culture, when he married Mary, he wasn't then going, hey, Mary, let's go find an apartment down in Bellevue. It was, no, Mary, I'm taking you home to my father's house and we're building an addition onto my father's house and we're living with them. And not only are my parents there, but my brothers, my sisters, their families are all living there. My grandparents are all living there. My aunts and uncles are either under our tent roof, whatever, or they're nearby. It is a huge family. And let me just ask you a simple question. Think about this for a minute. He's 15, 16, let's say he's 17. Who's the first in that family to hear that Mary's pregnant? Who do you think? Mama, you, I don't know this, all right? We're using sanctified imagination right now, but I would, I would bet a lot of Midtown's budget, because it's not mine, I would bet the first person that heard that Mary was pregnant was mama. And what did mama do? Mama came home and told who? Daddy. <laughs> and I'm betting big money that this teenager maybe was the last person to know. And so you can imagine that this family is gathered together, aunts, uncles, grandparents. This is the big news. Joseph, you're engaged to a woman who had an affair and now she's pregnant. Can you believe this? What are we going to do? Now, the Bible says Joseph decided. I don't think he decided at all. I think he was told by mom and daddy, this is what you're going to do. Now you can see why he was afraid. When he showed up at the door with Mary on his arm and said, hey, dad, I had a dream. And uh, yeah, this angel said, the baby's holy. We're, we're moving in. The family plan was a good plan. It was a good plan. And what is God doing? He's saying, we're going to drop kick good because I'm taking you to great. And let me tell you, if you know Jesus, the same thing is happening to you with your family. You know, I grew up in a family, our family language, like the way we spoke, 
is we talk trash about everybody. I'm, I'm not kidding you. We, we, at church, we would be your best friend. We would just, uh, you're the greatest, you know. You're the, but around dinner that night, we talked trash about everybody. And we were gifted at it, man. We could find anything to pull threads on and talk trash. But it didn't stop there. You know, we also talked trash about each other. We, if my brother was not at dinner that night, we'd talk trash about him. You know, and it would create these this, this gossiping, this backbiting, it would create all this drama. We were always in drama. There was always some drama that was happening. And it actually was the love language of our family. I don't kid you. Like, have you ever, have you ever gossiped? Okay, I two, of you, two of you have. All right. <clears throat> so when you gossip, all right, just a pro class here, right? Gossiping, if you lean in and go, hey, i got something to tell you. Uh, I've not told anybody. Boy, you want to talk about it? Yes, give it to me. What is it? And then if they go, but you can't tell anybody. You're like, oh, that's the sweet stuff. Yes. I just, just snort it up, right? <laughs> you know why we love it so much? We... <laughs> Gary will be back next week, all right? <laughs> he did what? <laughs> I'm calling Presbytery. <laughs> we... <laughs> Thank you. Did I tell you I caught a possum? When you have that moment of, I'm giving you something that I don't give to anybody and it's our secret, it feels intimate, but it's false intimacy. It's not an intimacy built around truth and honesty and love. It's built around something else, but it feels so good. And we're so made for intimacy, even false intimacy, we're drawn to it. My family was incapable of true intimacy. And so what did we settle for? Drama drama. But when I became a Christian, the Lord said, Hey, you know, this little good family system you got here, you don't get to play in that playground anymore. And I remember the first time my mom called me and started talking trash about my brother and his wife. And I said, mom, stop. Uh, if you're going to talk about them, I'm getting off the phone. In fact, if you've got problems with them, then I'm happy to go with you and you can sit down and talk to them, but I'm not talking about them anymore. And so don't ever call me again and talk about my brothers or anybody else in my family because I will hang up on you. Well, maybe you saw this. This was back in like 1985. There was a mushroom cloud of explosion <laughs> that happened over my hometown. Let me tell you what happened. I, I destroyed the good because I was so hungry for the supernatural, but then I got labeled self-righteous. I'm telling you, it's scary. Because some of you, if you're going to follow Jesus by faith, it's time for you to stop being so silent in your family. Some of you have, have held on to this false peace by not saying anything. And you think that's good. That's good. And Jesus is going, no, 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 no. You're following me by faith. I'm calling you to something great. <clears throat> and it's time for you to find your voice. Some of you, meant, for some of you, you've got to learn the most difficult word in the human language. No, that is a hard word to learn. 
If, you, if you're so used to saying yes to everything in your family to keep the peace and it's all good and Jesus says, no, 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 you don't follow that family anymore. You follow me. Now by faith, come and follow me. You may find yourself going, no. Some of you, the day has come for you to choose your spouse over your parents. It's true. Choosing your parents is safe. It's predictable. It's what you've always done. The journey of faith of following Jesus is hard. It's scary. And some of you, I'm just going to break the news to you. You can't make your mama happy. You do not have that power. Even though her, her attitude and her heart has built a whole family system over convincing you that you have complete control over her happiness. You do not. Faith in God's goodness may create odds with your family. It did for Joseph. The second thing that we see here is that, you know, Joseph was of the family of David, which means that his whole family is of the lineage of King David. Now, they didn't have a lot of money, but everybody knew that they were a royal family. They were a part of that lineage. Even when they went to Bethlehem, which is the city of David, everybody would have known who Joseph was. Everybody would have known who Mary was. So when he took Mary to be his wife, everybody would have been talking about it. In fact, it came into great direct conflict with what we know to be true about Joseph because we know he's a human being. And that is as humans, we love it when people like us. We love it when people love us. We find it really hard when people don't like us. See, it's impossible to be on mission with Jesus and be good all the time in community. I mean, if you live in a neighborhood and you know, you're that neighbor that always brings food over for special events, you're a good neighbor. Or you mow that little strip of grass between you and your neighbor's house that nobody knows who's supposed to mow it, but you do it all the time. That's good. But as soon as you start praying and asking God, God, would you give me opportunity to share with my neighbor the truth of this gospel of Jesus Christ, that he's the Messiah, that they would know the life-giving life you've given me, they would know it for them. Now it starts getting scary. It's hard. Last fall, I took my car in to get some work done on it. And I was checking in, the woman that was checking me in, she started talking and I just let her talk. And we sat there for an hour and she told me her whole life story. <clears throat> and at the end of it, she told me, not knowing who I am, I'm just a stranger who's dropping off the car. She goes, and I've got some health problems and the doctors can't figure out what's going on with me. And uh, I'm sitting there and inside of me, I'm going, talk to her about Jesus. <laughs> and another part of me is going, no, just drop off your car and leave. You got places to go. <laughs> And so I got a compromise in the middle and I said to her, could I pray for you? And she looked at me and she goes, what? And I'm like, oh no, here it goes. This is where I should have said, oh, I'm a pastor. That's, you know, that we're weird this way. No, <clears throat> I held back and I said, no, could I pray for you? Those moments to where you're operating out of the norm into a place of faith are scary. They're scary to be in community and see a business deal as an opportunity for you to glorify the Lord. 
or people that you meet uh, at your lunch spot, that there may be divine purpose in the reason why you know these people. Or your neighbors. Like, think about how hard it is to invite somebody just to come to church with you on Sunday morning. Although there are tons of people in this room that have been invited to come to Midtown and would say, this has been a life-changing event for me to become a part of this community. I could bring up tons of people up here that would give testimony of the benefit of being invited here. And yet it is still hard because we live in such a good town and we're good neighbors. Yet Jesus is calling us to something that's great. Same with Joseph. And then finally, I just have to talk about this last part. It says, but he did not consummate consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. You know what that means? This teenager, teenager, comes home with a wife, moves into mama's place, lives with a woman, and doesn't touch her. His desires were good. His desires as a married man were good. And Jesus said, nope. I need you to trust me here. I need you to live by faith. See what is unseen, not as what is seen. And I got to tell you, the same is true for us. If, if we're going to follow Jesus, there are going to be times where Jesus says, those desires inside of you? Nope. Nope. Like you may be single here today and you go, but I got these good desires. You do. And God made you that way. He did. And the Lord is saying, uh, trust me. I need you to leave good and I need you to follow me by faith to the place I'm taking you, to my greatness. Some of you are married here today and you've got desires that you feel like are not being fulfilled in your marriage. And you're like, this just isn't fair. That may be true. And your desires are good. And you're like, it's time for me to take matters into my own hands. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The Lord, that was a pun, wasn't it? I didn't intend that. But that the Lord is saying, no, follow me. Follow where I'm going. How do we do that? How do we do that with our family? How do we do that with our community? How do we do that with our own desires as a person? Is it willpower? Like, is it devotion? Is it religious fervor? Like, how do we do this? Well, so um, I took the possum in the cage and I put him in my garage and uh, went to work and I got to the office and I started kind of asking everybody, what, what should I do with this possum? And I, you should be afraid of the people that work at this church because <laughs> like they were all like anti-possum. It was bad. And I was like, well, how do you take out a possum? Like, you know, possum assassins and some of the stuff they suggested, I can't even say I'm in church. All right. It's really sad. And I really wrestled with this. Like, you know, is this the demise of the possum? And so I decide, I'm, I put him in my trunk in the cage, and uh, I decide I'm going let him, to let him go free. So I drive to the woods to let him out, and that possum pees on my carpet in my trunk. <laughs> my car still smells like possum pee, all right? <laughs> Love has a price. And so I open the trunk, and... I got, you know, gloves on because I don't know, like when you let go possums, do they like turn on you? Like, what are they? Because he's already going, you know, and I'm like, "Mm, dude, this is just like not good. Some of you are like possum pros and you're laughing. But I reached down and I opened the gate and he took off like a rocket 
and was gone. And I was kind of sad. <laughs> I think I was kind of halfway expecting for it to take like four steps and then turn around and realize, like in a Disney movie, that you're not against me. You're actually giving me my life and just turn around and go, thank you. I've got to have this imagination that's going to name the next 50 kids after me, you know. When I have another litter of possums, they'll all be Randy. Um, they're all under my house. I know why Rusty agreed to come and get under my house today and see if there are babies down there. You know, a lot of times when we're exposed with this life of good and we're being called to the scary, which is a life of faith, we don't know where to go. So we just, we just run like that possum. I'm just, I'm just, I don't know. And I would say to you, Jesus is saying, run to him. Even right here in the passage, it says that his name is Emmanuel, which means God is with us, that God is with you. And his passion is for him to display his greatness to you and for you to live in the greatness and the glory of who he is so that you can begin to understand the greatness and the glory that he's made you to be. In Romans chapter eight, it says, he who did not spare his own son, didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also now graciously give you all things. He is for you. He is for you. He is for you. It is not your willpower. It's you running to the one who has power. It's not you stirring up your faith. You're realizing the one who has given you your faith so that you can come to him. And how do we do that? Really a simple way. Midtown, join me. Let's repent of good. Let's repent of this small living that we've brought into our lives. Let's repent of that and let's give it to the Lord and then turn to the Lord. We're about to worship and just say, just like Joseph, when he got up from the dream, he did exactly what you said. Give me courage to follow where you're asking me to go. And so here's what I'm asking you. <clears throat> we don't believe that sermons are the best work of man. We believe in God's economy for some crazy reason. He uses what I just did to work in your heart and your life. So what is he asking you to go do? What has he said to you? Think about it. We're about to sing. Repent of the good and then go do what he's calling you to do. It's going to be scary. But it'll lead you to his greatness. Father, we pray that you help us, Lord. We're not used to living by faith. It just sometimes we don't even know what that means to get into places where if you don't show up, it's not going to happen. We don't know what it's like for our prayer life to be uh, just shrunk down to one word, which is help. We don't know what it's like sometimes to travel into the frontier of faith and see the glory of our God. And we so often settle for the safe zone, comfort, good. But Lord, you are calling us to your greatness. So Lord, hear our repentance of how much we love the safe zone, even though we know we're made for more. 
And Lord, would you grant us the grace of hearing where you're calling us to go? And like Joseph, when we get up from this service, we will go and follow where you are going. In Christ's name we pray, amen.